Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Peak Mindset Podcast. Today, I'm super excited to have Alejandra Abusada, who is a clinical psychologist with a master's in human development from the University of Pennsylvania, as our guest today. Welcome, Alejandra. Hi, Dana. Thank you so much for having me. So excited to be here and for our conversation. It's my pleasure. I'm also really excited for our conversation. And to share with the listeners a little bit more about Ali, she identifies herself as a philanthropist at heart. And this has been super clear in what she's done with her career so far. She started her own nonprofit in Lima, which is focused on providing mental health and recreational activities to improve the well-being of low-income women. She still continues her work on mental health in Peru while living in Washington, D.C. and working at a nonprofit that works on implementing U.S.-funded international development programs in Latin America and the Caribbean. And Ali and I were introduced by a mutual friend who thought that it would be nice for us to connect given our shared interest in mental health in Latin America. Uh, so I've really enjoyed getting to know Ali, and I felt that she would be such a great guest for the podcast. So this is a, an episode that I've been looking forward to for a long time. Really excited to have you here. Thank you, Jenna. It was amazing to get to meet you too and, you know, like speak about our interest and passion for mental health. Yes, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about the mental health landscape in Latin America. I would say um, it's complicated. And this is like one of the main reasons I uh, decided to open the NGO. Um, I've seen this in a lot of Latin American countries, but especially in Lima, Peru, which I'm going to speak more about because it's a place where I've worked most on the mental health space. Um, it's very complicated. Number one, because of access issues. Uh, not everyone has access to a quality mental health because we must not, um, you know, be confused about when government or public policies like say, yeah, they have uh, people, all people have access to mental health, but they they are not thinking about uh, the quality of the mental health providers, because one thing is to have access to a general hospital, a government hospital, that they are going to do a clinical history and prescribe uh, psychiatric drugs. And other thing is to, okay, have, you know, your prescriptions, but also have a therapist and have someone that really wants to help. So I think that in Latin America, there's a confusion um, in be between access and between what is quality. And what are we having access to? So I think that's the first problem. And then, of course, we have uh, the, you know, like the several taboos and, you know, preconceived ideas of people and that people have about having a mental health um, issue. And it's definitely something that keeps happening. Uh, there's a lot of conversation where people have done several efforts to, you know, talk about talk more about like the topics of, especially now with COVID, you know, like of depression, anxiety, panic attacks, but there's still some, um, you know, like embarrassment when people say I have panic attacks because 
I feel that sometimes that in Latin America is kind of like a synonym of weakness. And it shouldn't be like that. So I think there's still a lot of work to do. I mean, we've come very far because people are now speaking about those issues when, when you know, like several years ago, that was completely out of the table. So I think we've made some progress, but there's still so much more to do. Wow. So you've touched on so many important parts of this landscape, and there's a couple that I want to bring to the forefront. So one that you mentioned is access, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and it sounds like, you know, most people would have access to something, but what is it that they actually have access to? And is that what they need? Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I think, an element of access is the affordability piece too, right? So it's like, what what can you afford? And is that what you need? Um, so I know that your NGO focuses on low-income women. So mm-hmm. I'm curious how you've seen like this affordability piece play out among that community. Um, okay, so first of all, when I got to the community, mental health wasn't even on the table it was a topic that they didn't even like talk about so like first of all how are you going to have access to something that you don't even know is a need you know um so that's that was the first problem you know that they didn't know that actually going to therapy or seeking psychological advice psychological services could improve their quality of life so for me, that was the first problem because you cannot have access to something if, if you don't know, it, like if, if it even exists or that it's going to improve your life. So that was the first issue. And then the second issue was when they found out that they needed a psychologist, number one, they didn't know where to look for, like for help. Um, there's no enough, inf- not enough information about you know, like where to find a psychologist, the different types of psychologists, different types of therapy, because of course it's not the same having a cognitive therapy than a psychoanalytical therapy. They're like different things. So there was like, even like, like zero knowledge about the topic. And then, you know, when you get the mental health access, sometimes I saw the problem that when it was free, because it was like through the government hospitals, they didn't have access. Like they had one, like one, a one time session with a a psychologist and they just did like a clinical story, you know, like a clinical interview. Like, what are your symptoms? Like at what times, you know, like very like basic. And then automatically there were, okay, so you need to go to a psychiatrist. So there was no indication about the importance of having therapy. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, that was the first problem. Of course, it was free. So they wanted to keep the rotation going. You know, they they wanted to keep, you know, um, patients in and out. They don't, they don't want to stay with a patient and have 15, 20 sessions or a year of sessions because they don't have the capacity. So that was one of the main like for me is one of the main issues and also that 
other therapists are very expensive. So they cannot afford afford them. Because unfortunately, this is people that are, are living not even paycheck to paycheck, but day to day. Absolutely. No, that was going to be my next question is that the care that these women have access to, how that differs from, I guess, the middle and upper classes in the same city. And um, it sounds like there's a variety of problems here, right? Like it's a revolving door model. Mm -hmm. They're trying to push people out, which is maybe not giving them the kind of care they need. Um, But it sounds like you know, another piece of this is is the stigma, right? And I found it really interesting that you said that um, this wasn't even really discussed as as a part of, you know, what these women might need as mental health. No. And, um, and that's particularly surprising to me because when we've talked about your NGO in the past and the kinds of stories that these women have brought, um, to you and to others facilitating this NGO, I find it absolutely shocking that mental health was not discussed. Yeah, uh, it's it's unfortunately it's a sad reality. But when I got to know more the day to day and the dynamics of these women, I could up to like until up to some point understand it because. Imagine this w- woman that has three kids and she has like she she's been like uh, abused by her partner. So imagine like and she has been abandoned. So she has to work all day to give their children, you know, like something to eat and access to education. How can you know, how could they work? And be able to also think about their mental health because their basic needs are not covered, you know, like the, uh, uh, you know, like shelter in some cases, because they don't have like sometimes they don't even have a concrete place where to live. So shelter, food, you know, like having clothes, those needs were not covered. So when those needs are not covered they are prevented of thinking about their mental health. They just want to survive. Totally. No, it's it's survival mode, and that makes sense. Um, yeah. But it's also... population, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's painful to think about because, you know, I, I completely understand why that's the case. You know, it's, it's survival mode, and, and mental health comes second or third or fourth or further down on the list but ultimately you know mental health can can become really mental health Mm -hmm. the thing is it can become so challenging and so pervasive that maybe it prevents you from being able to do these basic things that you need to do to survive and to help your kids survive and um you know even in the short term like it might be logical to prioritize these other things sometimes in the long term it can come back and and kind of hurt you even more because you apologized it uh and unfortunately it's not sometimes it's almost always wow wow and so tell me how does your ngo come in um okay so 
my NGO was born as a result of my dissertation thesis. Um, I did a qualitative study in representation of masculinity and in um, in low-income women in, in San Juan del Urigancho, in, that is like a very poor uh, shanty town in Peru. It's emerging now, but it has poor sectors. Um, so I wanted to understand, you know, how they uh, thought about the relationships and how they pick their partner and sometimes why they keep putting themselves in, uh, you know, like, in a in, in in a circle that um in a violent circle because like sometimes they are you know like they are abused by their partners and they stay there uh so i wanted to understand you know like the process of thinking so i started to do like in depth interview and several focus groups to you know like have qual a lot of like qualitative information and analyze etc so when i finished um my data recollection, I realized that what they needed was access to mental health and not even just mental health, like a psychologist and, you know, like having sessions or coaching, they needed, they needed a space for themselves. Right. They needed to look at themselves, you know, they, They they needed this time and space and safe space for reflection. Right. Because who were they going to talk to about their traumas? You know? Absolutely. So I was like, okay, so I want to really like continue engaging with this population to see what's going on, you know, like to see how can I help. I didn't I mean to be a hundred percent honest, I didn't have a clear idea what I was going to do. Like I, I did not plan to do a mental health NGO. Like that was not on my, you know, like agenda. I just wanted to see how could I help? How, how could I stay? And how could I keep engaging? You know? Right. Um, so the first thing that I did was I saw that the, when I created this, I saw that there were a lot of people that um, were interesting, interested about mental health. So I was like, mm, this is very like cool. And people that even like that they didn't have anything to do with mental health, for example, lawyers, uh, doctors. Well, doctors obviously have to do with mental health, but not what not psychologists, I you know what I mean? Yes. Um, I mean, like, how can I help you? And I was amazed because so many people wanted to help and so many people wanted to get involved. And I was like, okay, cool, you can do a workshop in, you know, like what do you want to do? I ask, you know, and there were a lot of like, um, uh, you know, for example, economists that they told me like, I can give a crash course in, you know, like family economy or family, you know, um, finances. And I was like, okay, cool. Great. So that's how it started. You know, like I did it like once every two weeks or once, once a month, I brought, you know, like, uh, workshops about, things that they could use on their day-to-day. -day. And they, then I started with focus groups. And I was like, okay, so what do you think you need? 
And they told me, okay, so we need help of knowing how to eat because sometimes we feel bad because we feel that we're not eating enough or that we're not eating correctly because I'm getting fat, you know, like, and those are typical problems that we all have. But the difference is that, unfortunately, some people can feel that they're getting, you know, like that they're not eating well so they can get to a nutritionist. But these people don't have those kind of access. So having the access improved their quality of life and life and therefore their mental health. So it's not just a a psychologist thing, you know, it was much more broader. So that's when I came to define that Mami Linda was was going to be an NGO focused in, you know, three aspects, biological, psychological, and social aspects. So it's going to, it was going to have a holistic approach. Right. And uh, yeah, Sorry. I think what what's really interesting to me about this is that so far in our conversation, you know, we've touched on mostly the downstream, um, I guess, impacts or how to address mental health when things are really bad. Right. Like go to the hospital, go to a therapist, go to, um, you know, a, a professional. Right. And get seek professional help. But what we haven't talked about and what you're now touching on is this more preventative space of, course, yeah. of, you know, normalizing these discussions and allowing people to have a sense of community or solidarity, access to some workshops, maybe a space to think about and reflect on things that they just have not had time and space or the, the kind of prompt to reflect on before. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think what's so powerful about this is that um, in being preventative, right, like ideally you can you can help prevent the desperate need for some of these downstream Mm -hmm. needs, especially in an environment where it's really difficult to find those um, services when you really need them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And also. For example, and and what I also wanted to create that is also preventative is the creation of a community because they felt like, oh, she's also part of Mami Dinda. So, you know, like maybe when they had problems between them, they could discuss them. And for me, that has like, that has a huge value that they feel that they are part of something, you know? Absolutely. But they feel that they have someone to lean on. Absolutely. It's a safe space and it's a feeling of, you know, I'm not alone. And that's like a very human, basic human desire, right? To feel that um, you're a part of something and there's other people who are going through something similar and you can lean on each other for support. Um, And I think that it's really beautiful that you're creating these kinds of spaces. Thank you so much. Thank you. I, I'd love to hear a bit more about some of the stories that have most impacted you out of the women that you've helped through Mami Linda. Okay. Well, definitely there's been a lot of stories uh, that I've heard. There are a lot of, 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 of women that I've known like in, in this path. And I think I've been inspired by them and by their strength 
you know, like sometimes when I saw myself, you know, like getting down because of like a little problem, I was like, come on, you can, you know, like you, you see them as an inspiration sometimes. And one of the most, like the woman, the women, the woman that I most, you know, like admire, admire and that, you know, just helped me with Mami Linda and helped me create spaces was my uh the first woman I had contact with on uh, of the of this shanty town that we call her uh Latina. And like on you know like as a you know as a nickname. And uh she was she has uh two boys. Uh they're now of uh, 15 and 16 but she had been you know like um abused and but she had you know been able to really like um do a path by herself so she did a store from scratch and that's kind of like the supermarket of the shanty town so i think that that was admirable uh she did it like while pregnant and she then you know, like kept, you know, buying stuff to resell. And then she raised enough money to buy a little, you know, like land space where she built, actually she built like herself the store. So I was amazed because like now it's one of the most like popular places in the shantytown. And I felt so proud and I felt so surprised of how someone that had been through a lot, you know, um, could just have this mindset about, you know, like I have to keep going, I have to grow, I have to make the, the you know, like the best I can for my kids. I really admired that. So uh, that's what was one of the stories. And, you know, I think that in general, I can, I can stay. I, you know, like I, I sense the resilience in them. And that's one of the things that I most admire because all the bad things of the world can happen to them, but they're going to still fight for the love of like that they have for their children and also for life. Because a lot of them, when, um, uh, when they, you know, start living again they enjoy life and they're happy and they tell you like life is beautiful and you say like wow that's that's resilience you know like that's being like have been you know like going through the worst and still stand up and smile you know so that's the thing that impacts me the most um how they keep going day to day uh without you know just like i mean they they fall but they come up stronger. Wow. Wow, that's really powerful. I I also am really deeply impacted by stories of resilience. I think um it's very inspiring to to hear about people who have been through so much but still are very focused on their values on what is meaningful to them on what they what their responsibilities are to others and to themselves and just continue fighting mm-hmm. yeah continue because that's a certainty you know 
that we have to continue. And that applies for everyone. You know, when we encounter uh, problems in our paths, in our journeys, uh, it's difficult sometimes to think that we actually do need to continue. You know, like we cannot stop. And then, I mean, we can stop to rest and to, you know, recharge, but we have to keep fighting. Absolutely. I want to learn a bit about your own journey with your own mental health and wellness. I mean, you're a very ambitious person. You've done a lot in your life and career so far, um, you know, going to an Ivy League school and um, starting Mommy Linda and now having this career in Washington, D.C. Um, so I'm curious, you know, how has your own journey been through your own mental health and wellness throughout all that you've been striving to achieve? Well, that's an actually a pretty good question. Um, it's, it's been, it's been a ride. Um, personally, you know, like I've always been a big believer about uh, asking for help. Uh, me and I mean, I've been to a psychologist since I had 15 and now I'm almost 30. Uh, so it's half of my life. And I think that what helps me the most is that I'm very aware of my feelings and my emotional states. You know, like I, I've learned to, to look at myself, you know, and I see when I'm starting to get anxious, when I'm starting to get depressive, when I'm starting to, to get, you know, like a bit sad. So I prevent, you know, but it's been, it's been a ride because I had issues, for example, with anxiety. And I think that once um, you know that, you have two ways or you just like, stay in a rabbit hole and you know just say I have anxiety and you know like get yourself into a you know like into a cloud of negativity that I've done you know like it's it's completely normal and I think we have you know like the choice of getting through it and you know like getting through it and like and getting stronger about like after leaving those experiences of anxiety or, or depression. So I think we have that choice several times in our lives. It's not that you only have one choice of, you know, just like getting better and, and that's it. No, I think that every time I have, for example, I speak for myself. I don't speak, every, everyone has a different, you know, like perspective, but I speak for myself. Um, there are a lot of times where I've been, you know, like bumped down because of several, you know, like uh, situations in my life that I've, I've gone through. And also because of like my own expectations about myself. And that has like resulted in, you know, like depressive states or anxiety. And in different, in different times of my life, I had a different approach, you know, um, and nowadays, um, I have um, a more, you know, like, okay, let's build up on this approach, then uh, let's go into the rabbit hole 
approach. But that's because I've worked. I've done my homework. You know, I've been to therapy. I now know myself. I've learned to recognize when I'm going to have, you know, like maybe a panic attack. You know, like, you know what can give you a panic attack. You know that not sleeping well can cause panic attacks. You know that drinking a lot can cause panic attacks. So when you know and you know that you suffer from it and maybe that you are you have you know like you have more chances of getting a panic attack then you start taking care of yourself it's difficult sometimes it's super difficult because it's inevitable that sometimes we're not going to sleep well we're going to go to a party and drink but you know like remind ourselves that it's all transitory that it all shall pass, you know, like, and that's a phrase that I always use. It's like in in Spanish is va a pasar, in English is, you know, like, it's going to pass, you know, like it shall pass. So like that keeps me like thinking that emotional, you know, situations and emotional states are transitory. They are not permanent. And thinking about that has helped me a lot. And of course, you know, like with help of like my psychologist and, and, you know, I have, I had a spiritual coach that helped me a lot. I've been able to, to navigate through, through, through life in, um, in a very, um, healthy way. I, I, I would like to think, um, but I do feel that knowing yourself is one of the most important things and it's something that you should invest time in wow well first of all thank you for for sharing all of that with me and with the listeners and second of all i want to share with you that so so much of what you said has really resonated with me and i think that the number one thing that I'm taking away from what you said is this kind of gift of self-awareness and just the sheer importance of that um, and the power of that, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, um, I think, that, you know, I went through most of my life, you know, not really being very self-aware, Um And, you know, like you said, kind of experiencing these feelings, but feeling that they were kind of something that was out of my control, right? Mm -hmm. There's something external that happens to you. And then, you know, you kind of just have to ride the wave as best you can and deal with it, right? But I think it wasn't until very recently, actually, of all places, I mean, this might surprise some people, but it was really my doing my MBA at Stanford where a lot of the coursework is very introspective and works on developing you as a person and as a leader and really prompted me to to get more in touch with my emotions and understand okay what is this is this being nervous or is this being sad or is this being angry and what does that feel like in my body? And what does that feel like in my head? And how can I help myself feel better? What do I need? Um, what do I need to do myself? And what do I need from others, right? In a professional exactly. context and in a personal context, right? And um, this kind of self-awareness, you know, like you've said, is 
is so, so important. And I just don't know if it's talked about enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's so powerful. And something that I haven't stopped thinking about is that a lot of these these concepts are actually quite elementary, right? It's like, okay, are you sad, mad, or like something else, right? It's like yeah. something you could talk to a five-year-old about, right? But but yet it's not something that, you know, I came across until like my mid to late 20s. Yeah. Right? And um, and so, you know, that's something that I think about a lot, especially in these contexts of preventative care, and particularly in the context of helping disadvantaged communities that may have a really hard time accessing that emergency mental health care or therapy, um, which should not be the case, but unfortunately is. And so I often think about, you know, what can be done, right, to to kind of help um, people become more aware of you know, themselves and also the ways in which they can help themselves and the ways in which they can lean on support from the people around them in the the environments that they're already in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's, yeah, that's, that's the thing, you know? And I feel that sometimes, I mean, it's, it's in us, but it's difficult to grasp that concept because we tend to put a lot of our our like we we tend to feel that the outside is responsible for what happens inside and it is until a certain point but not 100% you know and we can change that right absolutely i think is such a a powerful thing, right? Um, to to help someone or help yourself kind of have a better state of mind. I think um, it's such a wonderful gift, and it's something yes, that absolutely, is, yeah, it's something that's super important to me. Um, and Very gratifying. Yes, yes. I'm curious. You know, you're trained as a clinical psychologist. How did that affect? your own journey and your own understanding of yourself? Mm, I think it's, there's, there's a saying that one studies psychology because you want to cure something in yourself. And I don't know until what extent that is true, but I feel that I lived my career, you know, like I could get engaged and I, and I, feel that so many things that I learned resonated with myself. And I think that that was one of the main things that um, made me passionate about the career. And also, I feel that you're tested in a lot of ways, because to to be a psychologist, and uh, I, 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 did, I had a, my private practice for two years, um, you have to have empathy feel and try to understand what others feel but at the same time maintain your distance because if you get very like emotionally involved then the most like you're not going to help the patient as you would want to 
So you have to learn just to, to know like what is the fine line in between, you know, like feeling, having empathy, but then what is like the other, like when do you have to put your distance? So I think that that has helped me a lot. And actually, you know, like studying psychology has helped me to understand the world. Um, I I can navigate through, you know, like complex environments and I've been near pain. I know what is pain. You know, I know what is what is, you know, like people that are suffering. So once you know that kind of like human suffering and and once you navigate through all those feelings you feel empowered because you say okay so life is has you know like different um shades but i feel that on myself being a psychologist knowing all this shades helps me navigate them so i can encounter a lot of like problems in my life uh as everyone you know but i feel that um my career gave me the tools to um navigate and you know just like ride with life you know like and learn to serve the wave you know until like until some point wow it sounds like it's been a really powerful it's been powerful for you both in as a professional and as a personal on a personal level yeah which i think is it's rare to find things that that really serve you on both sides yeah yeah but i think i was never separated from my career you know absolutely and I'm sure also your clinical background has helped you in your work with Mami Linda as well. Of course, it has. It has. Absolutely. Of course. I mean, that's how it was born. Yes. Well, Ali, I have enjoyed having you on the podcast so very much. I'm, I've really loved this episode. And I have one last question for you before we wrap up. Of course. My question for you is, what is your peak mindset? Mm, I would say, keep going. Wow. That's really powerful. I think that it's... I mean, it's, it's very basic, but it's, it's what it's, I tell myself. It's profound because it speaks to a lot of what we've talked about in this in this episode, right? The stories of the women in Mami Linda and, and also in your own journey, right? Your own professional and personal journey. Um, and, you know, the feeling of this too shall pass, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think that that mindset can help us navigate through a lot when we are having a bad day we can say to ourselves, keep going. When we're having an awesome day, keep going. Right. Absolutely. Ali, thank you so much for your time. It's been such an honor to have you here. And thank you for having me, Jenna. It's been amazing. Thank you. Thank you.